People assume I do this podcast because I have aspirations to transition into the world of broadcasting, or I want my own radio show on terrestrial or satellite radio, or I have some ulterior scheme up my sleeve. Nothing can be further from the truth. It's understandable, though. These days, people don't do things unless they have some concealed agenda, and every move is just another branch of a multitask. I've said this time and time again. My reasons for doing this podcast are nothing more than procuring extended meet and greets with people I admire. Think of it as a long, protracted fan scheme that's involved me putting out eight studio albums of my own band in order to get to this stage. And as much as I lack patience, it's the long game that always interests me. It's a great privilege to be able to sit in a room with someone I've listened to and watched since my formative music years. And David Wilcox is one of those people. I've been listening to David Wilcox for as long as I was able to turn on my parents' radio and twist the dial to find any radio station that emitted distorted guitars. When I finally landed on local rock radio station Q107, David's songs were in heavy rotation there, long enough to eventually get woven into the fabric of my musical psyche. First, hearing David Wilcox unknowingly, and then eventually understanding who he was in grade school, to eventually getting into him, he's somebody who has always been there for me. Admittedly, while growing up, I embraced and absorbed other genres into my musical palette more readily than David's, but I'd always go back and touch base with David Wilcox. I would never view his music as something I had outgrown or phased out of either. It was always a familiar voice and guitar, free of pretension, always comforting, always warm. I'd always end a reconnection to David's music with me saying to myself, I forgot how good his music was. I've probably said that to myself almost a dozen times throughout the years. He's been putting out solo albums since 1978 when he released Out of the Woods, followed by My Eyes Keep Me in Trouble, Bad Reputation, and then Breakfast at the Circus. Those records kicked off an impressive string of hits that have since been embedded into the psyche of a whole generation of music fans, myself included. I put songs like Do the Bearcat, That Hypnotizing Boogie, Bad Apple, Downtown Came Uptown, Too Cool, Riverboat Fantasy, Layin' Pipe, Honor Roll, Preaching the Blues, and Hot Hot Papa on the same playlist and equal footing with classic rock staples like Robert Cray, George Thorogood, Bonnie Raitt, The Fabulous Thunderbirds, Keb Moe, and ZZ Top. Murray McLaughlin once called David Wilcox an eccentric songwriter. That's one way to look at it. I choose other adjectives simply because eccentric suggests weird or odd, but doesn't necessarily connote catchy, memorable, appealing, and singable. All components that make up a gifted songwriter, all components that make up David Wilcox. I only point this out because I feel he's often underrated and overlooked, or maybe I've put him on such an elevated perch. And then there's the business of his status as guitar hero, something which is very correctly designated, but sometimes when listing guitar heroes in this country, names like Alex Lifeson, Jeff Healy, Pat Travers, Rick Emmett, Paul Dean, Gordy Johnson, Ian Thornley, and Denny Damore might overtake the spotlight, but make no mistake, David Wilcox belongs on that list too. Dare I say heads above a few of those exalted names I just mentioned. I met David Wilcox twice before this podcast episode get together, and I walked away contented that my image I had of the man did not diminish, but rather maintained and grew. So with that, in my fandom intact, I felt confident enough to try and secure a sit-down, confident that I could hurl questions about his career, and he wouldn't back down. My timing couldn't have been worse, though. Seems that David played a New Year's Eve show last December and was now in the first quarter of a year-long sabbatical from shows, from appearances, and from doing interviews. However, he made an exception to do this podcast coming out of his sabbatical to meet me and endure a lifelong David Wilcox fan, fanboy, out on him. For that, 
I am grateful, flattered, and consider it a feather in my cap. None of this would have been possible if it weren't for Jane Harbury, David's publicist, who hooked this meeting up and provided the space for us to do it. So thank you very much, Jane. I must state here that 30 to 35 minutes into my talk with David, I had some technical problems that I didn't quite catch until 15 minutes after it happened. And because of that, I lost about 15 minutes of our discussion. I had to do the rest of the podcast through my smartphone, but I do think the audio is totally fine. Actually, it's almost on par. So, you know, go figure. This podcast is supported by Blue Mic Microphones, Skull Candy Headphones, This podcast supports Chino Loco's restaurants because when I want a fish burrito, I want it stuffed with chow mein noodles. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And if you can, please leave a rating and or a review in the iTunes store. It helps the podcast's profile. Okay, here we go. This is my talk with the guitar hero, the bluesman, the Canadian music icon, David Wilcox. And it starts... Now. The Dago Joe's Pockets is the best around. Nick Flynn and Kidd is Dago's crew. I'm still over free. I'm still glad I like to sometimes. Get me in from fucked up. Stop playing. Hang down. Down. Dago Jones Podcast. With a finger on the pulse of what's going on culturally in the world. Wait a second. That's not his finger. When the weather is bad and there's nothing much to do Take a listen, would you now, to what Danko Jones would do It's the middle of the night and you better do it fast Turn the speakers up loud for Danko's podcast Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready Because the Danko Jones podcast starts now David, it is a pleasure, an honor to have you on my podcast today. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Thank you, Danko. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, the first time we met, and I don't know if you remember, because people always say this to you. You come and hey, remember me? I'm the guy who said, go for it, seven years ago <laughs> during yes. the show on the Encore. I fixed your shoe. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I think I remember because I know, I mean, I know your distinction as a musician, mm. so it, it makes a person stand out a bit. When, you know. Well, I, it was Hamilton. Was it? I didn't know where it was. Yeah, but, okay. it was Hamilton at, in yeah. the catering of this, I guess it was an indoor kind of festival thing mm-hmm. we were playing, yeah. and you were there with Rick Emmett. Yeah, that's right. And, oh, yeah, it's a songwriter's circle I was in, I think. And uh, Ian Thomas was there, too, I think. And we were in some other part of the venue in Hamilton, in some right. big arena, but we were playing a separate show. Mm-hmm. But there was all kinds of music things going on in the building. Sure. And I went up to Rick Emmett. I didn't see you at first. And then I turned and it was, I saw you and I can't remember if it was you or, or I went up to you mm-hmm. and, um, and that's how I met you. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, of course, I mean, I've, you know, of course I know your music. It was about, it cemented that moment for me when I met you. It was amazing. Cool. It was right after yeah. catering. And I just thought to myself, damn. If we had only come in here 20 minutes earlier, we could have had dinner with David Wilcox and Rick Hammett. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so, uh, and then I saw you a few years back Mm -hmm. on the subway. Yes, we did. I remember that too. That I remember, yeah. 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 Um, And what I remember about it was you had just come from Ottawa. Oh, was that right? Right after the shooting in Ottawa? Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, uh, my wife and I like to go away for weekends and not go far. You know, just a simple get out of town. Yeah. And we went to Ottawa and went for a walk. And uh, all of a sudden, there were police everywhere, and we couldn't go back to our hotel. And there were all kinds of rumors, you know. And uh, uh, it was really an unusual experience. And uh, I eventually, I, I booked us another hotel because I thought, and I didn't have my passport with me, which is kind of scary. Yeah. You know, we did get in we were at the Chateau Laurier yeah and that was in the center of uh, the the tragedy you know yeah so uh, uh, it all resolved fairly well but it was a a little more uh, than we'd planned for I mean on Canadian terms that was a very big event I mean in terms of 
guns and shooting and stuff. We don't get those things too often around here. So you were kind of in the, the heart of it, and it had just happened. Yes. Well, I, I'm a big fan of multiculturalism, yeah. and I think that the more we include people and, and uh, let people feel, or um, everybody feel, that we have a voice, the less likely it is that those kind of things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. I think you were still a little bit shocked by it. I was very shocked by because it. Because that was the first thing you went into on our brief subway ride. Yeah, I'm sure I was still processing it. Yeah. I, uh, I, think, I, took, I think it took about two stops for me to approach you. Oh. And I spotted you. I'm like, oh my god, that's David Wilcox. Hmm. I think well. I got an in with him from Hamilton. Oh well, I mean, <laughs> like I said, I know who you are yeah. and your music. So, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I think you know when I hear you, when I hear your music, I hear your voice. Um, the immediate thing that hits me is it is such a comforting voice for me Thank because you. I've grown up with it you were and i was thinking back leading up to this interview you were most likely the first i heard of i I heard the blues in a proper context Mm -hmm. and i think i'm not the only one is you know in these parts that could say that Mm -hmm. um but the most distinct uh memory i have is when I was in grade eight, mm-hmm. and we were all into the cool. The cool bands were Van Halen and Motley Crue. Sure. And I remember Wasp mm-hmm. because there was one guy who was into this band Wasp. Now Wasp were a band that had their height of fame in the eighties. The singer ate raw meat. Uh, they 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 sang. They had uh, he had a uh, a saw blade on his jock strap. Oh. Uh, Blackie Lawless. <laughs> he it, stole that from me. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Go ahead. And uh, the the guy who sat in front of me was into Wasp, and I liked Wasp too. Mm-hmm. Then one day, he said to me, "I'm not into any of that. I'm into David Wilcox." Hmm. And I said. Who the hell is David Wilcox? Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound like Wasp or Def Leppard mm-hmm. or, or no. Motley Crue. It's just this guy. And he I think he brought out your the cover of the greatest hits. Okay. And I then I then I was listening to Q107. I heard your voice and I never figured out you were Caucasian, you were a white dude until mm-hmm. I think a couple of years later mm-hmm. when um, uh, Breakfast at the Circus came out. And I that was the first cassette I borrowed from the public library, and that's how I got into you. Oh, wow. And, you know, I always wanted to tell you that because, um, and I think I would get a kick out of it if someone goes, How did the podcast with David Wilcox go? And I said, Well, we talked about Wasp. <laughs> oh, yes. I don't think I've ever talked about Wasp before with anybody. No. I've heard the name, but that's it. But that know. was my connection. That was yeah. my introduction to you because sure. he did an about face and those bands were, you know, beneath him. This was now something that was mm-hmm. something to aspire to, to get into. So that's what initially in, uh, got me interested and curious into you. And then mm-hmm. I heard you on the radio and I realized that... Um, but you were, I mean, I really liked it. And you were great. And then I, w- I have to admit, there was years where I didn't hear you. Mm-hmm. But every single time I'd hear you, it was a very comforting voice. It was timeless to me and something that I always relished listening to. And mm. leading up to this talk with you, I've obviously gone back to your records, and, and it's, I stand by it. Well, thank it's, you. It's fabulous. I'm a, Thanks, a big da- David Wilcox fan. Oh, thank you. Huge. Friend. So this is a big deal for me. All right. Well, thanks. You know, I think that uh, um, a great yogi once said that music is the fastest way to bliss. And I think that anytime, and you know yourself as an artist, that anytime someone can find either comfort or release or escape or a positive feeling in one's music, that's a wonderful feeling mm-hmm. because then you or I have been a channel for that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. absolutely. And, you know, eventually doing what I ended up doing, 
uh, I find I have a you know there's some sort of affinity. I think we've done we've gone through very similar paths. Mm-hmm. You know, playing the kind of music we do, the style that we do. I mean, I'm just curious to hear about your experience as fronting your own music, putting mm-hmm. your name out there uh, mm-hmm. in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, how it's been. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of what sure, I wanted sure. to pick your, pick your brain about. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, when I started, I had been a side person. Uh, yeah. I played with a variety of artists, Anne Murray, Ian and Sylvia for a couple of years, um, uh, different country mainly artists and, and, and some pop artists. And uh, um, I eventually, with the help of my first wife, um, uh, decided to step out and try being a front person because um, uh, I thought it would improve my singing uh, as a background singer and I could solo more, which I wanted to do on the guitar because oh, okay. I, I wanted to explore that. I also had some arrangement ideas and some approach ideas, you know. And so uh, I started doing that, never thinking that it would blossom into an ongoing career, which mm-hmm. it did. And at that time, there were a lot of little bars uh, across Canada, but especially around the horseshoe. I think one third of the uh, population of Canada lived in the that horseshoe around Lake Ontario. Right. So there were tons of little bars. And you could go, if you went from Richmond Hill to Oshawa, it was like going from Vienna to Melbourne, Australia. I mean, there was no overlap, really, in terms of your audience attending. Uh, so, And they were small places anyway. And, I mean, they weren't uh, glamorous or anything like that. Um, they ha- hired, generally, bands for three nights to six nights a week. And the comms were there, which were pretty bad, usually. Yeah. And it didn't pay great. But you could pre- work on your instrument, in the case of a front person work on um, uh, uh, working with a crowd which is an art form as you know mm-hmm. uh, and so it was a really good opportunity that way and in the beginning we bombed a lot uh, because we weren't on the radio mm-hmm. I discovered the power of airplay which is astonishing I mean yeah, it just it is. it's ridiculous you know they must be okay they're on the radio you know well alright but uh, I still remem- remember the night when it turned around um, now, we had a little following in a few places, but I went, I got a gig in a place called Elmvale or Elmdale, Ontario, and I'd never played there before with the band, and we went, and it was a Friday night, and the place was full, which was a bad sign, because probably they'd get angry because we didn't play top 40 pop, right? And so we went on, and this is after my first album had been released, and Danko, they knew the words. They asked for our songs. It was a transforming night in my life, you know? It was so wonderful. And uh, it took me a long time to get used to being applauded before we played. Usually we'd have to win the audience over, you know? Wow. You know, so. That is, I think people have to really take this, go back and understand the time. Because even bands that played original music were oddities. Am I right? Very much so, right. especially on that kind of circuit. Right. Um, it, the people didn't do it much, and uh, uh, it was frowned on. But uh, it turned around. Again, you know, uh, when I first started singing, people said, you don't sound like anybody else. And that was a bad thing. But then it turns into a good thing when uh, uh, it becomes identifiable. And people, right. you know, you have something of your own, hopefully. Right, right, you right. Know? Yeah. And with all these little bars and clubs um could you tour for a year like could you do like six months to nine months on the road like within the province maybe not within the province but uh, we gradually started going afield you know to alberta and, and to halifax i remember the first time i went to halifax and things like that um uh, so there was definitely enough work to keep working steadily but again it didn't pay well you know um uh, it was subsistence work pretty much and these are like we- like was it like a week stand either or- three nights or a week, right. you know, Monday right. to Wednesday or Thursday to Friday or the six nights and four sets a night, something three, four sets a night, you know. To me, this is something that I'm, uh, I've never experienced because, mm-hmm. you know, we started our band in 96 and even yeah. before, years before that, yeah. um, it was just hit the town and 
get out. Yeah, it was gone by then, that kind of circuit, you know. And I think it's something of a loss, uh, even though the places were a little, you know, uh, cheesy and all that, you know. uh, But the fact is that it was a chance to learn your instrument or learn one's instrument and learn how to work with an audience. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that sometimes I think, you know, I, I look at the pattern, like great bands like the Beatles and Zeppelin, they had a repertoire in their back pocket of covers that they did years of just doing covers. It was basically college for them. That's exactly right. Yeah. But I jumped head first and just... <laughs> yeah, and, and obviously with, you, know, you, like little, you know, have a yeah. gift. Uh, but it works. That, that's, to me, sometimes I think uh, I would have been a stronger musician, obviously, if I had that kind of grounding. But I was just too impatient. I don't know about stronger. You would have been a, probably a different musician. But the thing is, it's just um, mm. apples and oranges, you right, know. Right. Yeah, yeah. That was the thing that was happening when I was coming up. And sometimes I get asked, how has the industry changed since I started working in it? Yeah. And I mentioned that. And the other thing I mentioned, of course, is the internet, because the internet made it much more democratic. I'm not saying easy. I'm saying democratic in the sense that everything was run by five or six record labels. And if uh, we all knew, or most of us uh, working then, knew bands or artists, songwriters, who were wonderful, who never got signed. So yeah. they didn't get a hearing. Yeah. You know, I was one of the lucky ones. Yeah. No, I, I believe that the internet did. I mean, good or better or for worse, it made albums that had like $2 million marketing campaigns behind them. Um, on equal footing with someone's basement recording. Exactly. On yeah. certain platforms. Yeah. And uh, in a way, in some cases, it was uh, a minus, and it kind of, I think, saturated music, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where you can't actually figure out, you can't, it's just too much that you can't find the good stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just the same way that you couldn't find the good stuff before, because you would only get what you were fed. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, but so it's we're back more, where we started. Somewhat more egalitarian, hopefully. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Um, now, I wanted to ask you, and you kind of answered it, like, what made you, because you were doing f- very well in uh, Great Speckled Bird, right? Yes. What made you break to break free and be a solo artist? Well, I didn't go directly to being a solo artist. I joined a oh. band that was kind of anarchistic, and uh, it was called the Rhythm Rockets. And we knew oh. that the name was ridiculous. I mean, we knew it at the time. We did that. <laughs> we ordered pizzas from the stage. We told club owners to fire us. I mean, you know, it was just really... Performance uh, art. Great, uh, performance art, exactly. Right. And the, the quality level, I think, went wildly up and down. Um, but uh, I did that for a while. But mainly, the reason I left Ian and Sylvia was that I had... Okay, I never played the electric guitar before I joined them, right? Uh, only acoustic. Wild. And uh, I, I had I'd gotten an electric guitar on a pawn ticket, right? And when I heard they needed a guitar player, I, uh, I, you know, sort of begged them for an audition and got it and somehow got the job. You know, I didn't know how to turn the amp on in, in, in their basement, you know, but I, I got the job. And replaced a wonderful guitarist named Amos Garrett, which right. was terrifying, right. you know. But I, uh, anyway, so I did that for two and a half years, and then um, I was really getting into the electric guitar, and I wanted to solo longer, because most of the solos there would be eight bars, mm. you know, four bars, yeah. you know, quick turnarounds, which is fine, you know. But uh, I wanted to do something where I could branch out more and stretch right. out more, you know. Um, uh, and you replaced Amos Garrett, who was a Excellent. pretty big deal at the time. Oh, yeah. Remember, right? Oh, very, yeah, very yeah. respected guitarist, and still is. Yeah. And uh, that was terrifying. That was really hard. But uh, the other hard thing that happened was that the steel guitar player in the band, not in the beginning, but a, a little while after I joined, was Ben Keith, who was Neil Young's band leader. Oh, And okay. um, it was a magnificent player. Tone to die. Ideas so simple, just a great musician, mm-hmm. right? And so there I am with my little Telecaster, and I play eight bars, and then there's eight bars of angel choirs, or vice versa, right. and it was terrifying, right. you know. Uh, but it was I did they didn't fire me, and it was it made me a better player right. to play with Ben. But it was very very hard, you know. What made you stay away from the electric guitar that long? Um, partly snobbery. 
This you know? is like mid seventies, right? Um, well, uh, late sixties, around oh, nineteen seventy. Yeah, a little earlier than that. I joined them in nineteen seventy, and I was a, a pure purist. I was into roots music, and uh, well, quick story. Okay. Yeah. So I'm into roots music. Blind Lemon Jefferson, Robert Johnson. The you know this this is music to me, and everything else is crap. You know, <laughs> so, well, that's how I thought. Right. So my mother announces to me one day, um, I, have, I have a sister who's three years younger. My mother announces to me, you're going to take your sister to the CNE to see the Jackson 5. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Teeny bopper, bubblegum, crap, no, no. But I, I, I couldn't refuse. Yeah. You know, so I took my sister to the CNE. Opening act plays, eh, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly impressed one way or another. And then out came a genius. So you acknowledged that. that oh, you, yes, you, now. You saw yes, I saw Michael Jackson. But you acknowledged it then? No, oh, well, well, yes, after that night I did. Yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, I just, he yeah. just tore me apart right. and there's this little kid up there uh, holding the audience in the palm of his hand singing and dancing like the genius he was and that was an eye-opener you know did you end up buying some jackson five records after no that night? Right. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> i listened more to rhythm and blues you right, know right, after that right, with right. more respect right. you know yeah uh i i find that i i I like that you held on so strongly for so long onto uh, your acoustic guitar. Well, um, yeah, it was like my secret. I, I had a couple of friends who were into it, too. The secret world of the, that kind of blues, and I was right. really into it, you know. Yeah. It wasn't as well known around that time. No, like not all at all. Blues guys. Not at all. I mean, there was a club in Toronto um, at Huron and Harvard, Howard's Campus Kibitzeria. That was the name. Okay. And it was owned by Howard Matthews, who was one of the people who owned the Underground Railroad restaurant, um, uh, which was uh, uh, one of the only African-Canadian restaurants at that time in Toronto, oh, okay. right? Okay. And, and they would bring in blues singers uh, who had recorded in the 1920s and 30s. And uh, I had a friend, Harry, and Harry and I would go down and we'd see uh, Book of White, who eventually asked me to play on stage with him, which really? was one of the great honors of my life. Yeah, wow. and who taught me a lot about music, but about attitude too. Mm -hmm. And you know, I played for him the first time and uh, played like some records, blues records, and that. And he said, "I can't play like Robert Johnson." And uh, he said, "But get your own, boy." Wow. Get something of your own, and that was great advice. Mm. You know, yeah. Wow. Uh, I have a, the the complete opposite. Uh, way of thinking. I was only about the electric guitar. Mm -hmm. And the acoustic guitar, uh, I poo-pooed it, yeah. but mainly because it intimidated the, and it still does to this day, intimidated the hell out of me. Because every time I pick it up, I realized just how much, how m many more lessons I need on, on a guitar. Well, you know. Uh, because, you know, it really, it, it you have to tame it. But it usually ends up taming me. Like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a, definitely you know. a beast. An electric guitar, you definitely have more power and control over, or you can fudge your way through it and and seem like you do. There's a lot of room way, to fudge. Yeah, yeah. 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 With uh, what I find with the electric guitar is it's very much a found experience in the moment mm -hmm. because what the amp does and the way it sounds will change with the venue, with mm -hmm. the temperature, with the humidity, whatever mm -hmm. the, the nature of the electrical power, if it's good or clean or dirty. But with the acoustic guitar, basically, it sounds one way more or less right. and can be mic'd on that basis. You know. So you you um. Go electric, yes, so to speak, right? Yes. When you break free, you're now fully electric. Well, at the time, yes. You were introduced to a mass crowd audience as an electric guitarist, yes, yes, right? yeah, like Carnegie Hall. I mean, there I am, you know. You feel like a traitor in some some respect, like you've kind of not after I started playing because I realized it took a lot more ability than I thought it. Okay, did. you just mentioned Carnegie Hall. Can I yeah. ask you about that? That was, well, I'll just be honest with you, it, it, that was a very special night for me too, because I, had, I was a lousy student in high school, I was no athlete, right? And so there I am, and Ian and Sylvia started going on the road with me playing acoustic guitar, which I was very comfortable with. Right. You know, so um, they did it with the band for a while, and then they do, Ian had a television show that w would be the electric band, but then right. they'd go on the road with just Ian on guitar and myself, and maybe a bass player later on. So I can't remember if there was a bass 
bass player or not. But we went and played Carnegie Hall, and, well, I just had a really good night. You know, Danko, one of those magic nights where things work, and they applauded my solos and stuff like that. And so there I'm, I'm like 21, 22 years old. And I just thought, I know I haven't made it, but there's a career for me in music. If I can do this at Carnegie Hall and, and, and get a decent reception, then there must be something. I, I, I can probably work. You know? I always think of moments like that, like big, huge moments, personal moments, where it's just kind of like a, a checklist. And you put it in your back pocket and you I say to myself, look, if nobody can take that away from me. Yeah. No matter what happens or what I do or how much I screw up, at least I got that under my belt. So that yeah. was one of those moments. A great for you. validation. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, it was, yeah. Um did you guys tour North America? North America we did. You yeah. did that whole so, so you you had the whole North American experience. Well, before. I don't know about the whole experience, but we we play in the South and, and yeah. we did the Johnny Cash show. Oh, um, God. which that was a really unusual experience. I don't like I it's not like I'm name dropping here, but okay. No, I love the it. the I other love okay, it. the other it. act on the Johnny Cash show was Stevie Wonder. Now oh my I st God. I still wasn't convinced about R&B, right? right? You know, I like you know, I was a blues guy. So okay. Um, they came over and asked if they could borrow our bass amp uh, before the show to rehearse with. And 21 years old, I don't, don't know anything about protocol or professionalism. And I said, can I come with it? Right. And they said, okay. So I go, and there I am in a relatively small room uh, with uh, Stevie Wonder, uh, who I never met. I mean, I, he was there, and I bet he, he was there, but and, and rehearsing. But um, uh, the, the bass player, guitar player, a drummer, because Stevie was on clavinet, I think, and uh, three uh, uh, women backup singers and a manager. And he was working up a tune. I don't remember what tune. Okay, All right. but uh, um, it uh, it blew me away. I mean, to to see him play like that, and and also to watch his hands, because the piano players I'd seen, and I mean, I play a tiny bit of piano myself, very little, but the piano players I'd seen had learned the conventional method where if you do a scale you put your thumb under your hand to continue right and stuff like that. Yeah. Stevie Wonder um, plays like a person well like a person who was blind and learned you know yeah. and, and so he will hit um, two keys with his thumb right. and, and right, different right. you know the, right. the hands looked very different cool. I know the way they worked you know but that really opened a world, another world to me when I saw that uh, you know do you have a Johnny Cash a story from yes, that? Yes, but it, and it's kind of funny. And, well, anyway, I'm there, and the Johnny Cash show budget was 10 times at least the budget of Ian Tyson's show. And so I thought, well, I even see Johnny Cash. You know, I'm yeah. curious. And so I'm backstage. We just arrived at Ryman Auditorium, which is a historic place in Nashville. Hank Williams was there, okay. you know. Okay. And I'm at Ryman Auditorium, and I'm walking down a hallway looking for the washroom. <laughs> And down the hallway, from the other direction, comes Johnny Cash. And we're alone in the hallway. And he says, hi. <laughs> and I didn't say anything. I was too intimidated. Right, right. But uh, that's my Johnny Cash story. Oh. <laughs> it's not much, but that's it. So, you know? I mean, that show didn't last for too long, right? I don't know. I didn't watch it much. Uh, uh, I think two or three years anyway. So you kind of you got yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah well, he I'm had saying. Ian yeah. Sylvia on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, oh, wow, cool. that's so cool. Yeah. Um, so when you when you break out and you become a solo artist and you're, you know, an electric guitarist solo artist, mm -hmm. um, the first album comes out in '77. No, it was recorded in '78, but it took two years to sell it. Uh, nobody would release it um, because it was that was disco time, right? Everything was disco. Um, so um, it t I tried and tried to sell it, and finally um, there was a fellow starting a small label who released it uh, in 1980. And it sold better than people thought it would. I think it sold 25,000 copies or something, which for a new artist was pretty good. Um, and uh, then the label couldn't pay me. Now, they eventually settled with me, in fairness to them, mm -hmm. years later. But they couldn't pay me, so I was off the label. But it had proven that our music could sell some uh, vinyl records. And so um, a little while later, EMI signed me. Right. And I was on and off their label for 15 years. And that came out, that came out two years after. They re-released it, right? Yeah, well, they, they re-released it. But it was, okay, recorded in 78, uh, released in 1980. And um, EMI bought it when they signed me. You're right. And then my, what I'm leading to is that's four years, right, of, of working the same record. 
Yeah. Right? Because then they had to, there was the yeah, re-release, yeah. and then you have to work it all over again. Well, now, we didn't work it the second time. When, when EMI released it, we oh, didn't promote didn't? it. No, they, they just released it oh, as it part of their like, catalog. Oh, just in uh, case you missed this. Yes. Uh, I had recorded a new album by then. Oh, okay. Cause, yeah, because yeah, that them. was, they, those we did work long that one. years. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I was just going to ask you, like, wh- how did you get through those years? And I can... I'm assuming that, you know, being a new solo artist, Mm -hmm. you're kind of like chomping at the bit to like write songs and get songs. I'm sure you had a ton. And it was precisely at this moment that I started experiencing technical problems, but engrossed in good conversation with David, didn't notice immediately. I lost about 50 minutes of our talk. I stopped, turned on my smartphone, which actually saved the day, and as you'll hear, it did a pretty good job of capturing the rest of our conversation. So, without further ado, here's the rest of my conversation with the one and only David Wilcox. So we left that off with you, me asking you about breaking out into a solo artist, Mm -hmm. and... uh, what were, let's just pick up from where you were just about to, we were, where were we? I, where were we? Jesus. Uh, we were talking about uh, artists diversifying. And, yes. Uh, their music or, you know, our music, yours or mine, uh, just growing in different directions and reflecting who we change into as we evolve as, as human beings. And I had made a mention of your recent work. Yes. Uh, being softer and still working with the rest of your discography at least to me as a listener and a, a long-time listener and it still makes sense in the discography sitting in the discography i also made mention of you still haven't abandoned some of the harder moments and more gnarly kind of blues riff moments and i asked you if you were going to continue with some of those hard the, your the hard rocking ways because mm. as a Musician, I'm a, I'm a rocker. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, where I, that's what got me to you. Um, so I asked you about that, and then, and yeah. Yes. Um, well, uh, very much so. I, I still have a bunch of rock material that ha- we haven't recorded, and we play. You know, I'm, I'm on sabbatical right now for 2018, yes. um, I, you know, which I do once in a while. But uh, um, I'm also recording a, a, an acoustic album of uh, songs that are meant to reflect the music I fell in love with as a teenager. Right. Um, and I have, you know, uh, I, I've written songs in the style a little bit of those artists, okay. you know, to try and capture some of the... The uh, uh, feelings and, and the grooves I love about it, um, with something original in it. I hope. Who would those artists be? Who who would the styles okay. be? Well, Robert Johnson, okay. Blind Lemon Jefferson, uh, Blind Willie Johnson, Blind Blake. Um, Stony Plain Records has already released a track of my little Blind Blake tribute called Uptown Bump. It's a guitar solo, and so those kind of things, those kind of artists. When I think of Robert Johnson, I think of those songs on those two records that I have yep. of his music. Yep. Um, and I think of how it was recorded. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I think about people like Robert Johnson, I think of and people who who are influenced by him and and some of his contemporaries. Yes. I think about the sound of the recordings and how important it is to add it adds to the feel of the songs did you incorporate that in your kind of tribute to to these artists as well i'm thinking of like a one mic thing or a, you know what mm-hmm. i mean like i started with one mic right. but then um i i thought I, I i asked i have a technical guy who teaches me and he suggested going to stereo so i did okay. um and uh um, i now have two mics and i'm working with that you know so i think more unconsciously than anything right. um i would reflect the sound of those records also it's important to remember that robert recorded later than a lot of them did uh, he used a mic uh, some of them did not they recorded right into a horn which is the way recording was done for part of the 1920s okay. you know so robert's fidelity is considerably better than an artist like charlie Patton, who right. was a great genius but didn't have the same uh didn't have the same freedom to engage in subsidy right. you know with the voice and guitar right. the same way robert would have because of the recording quality you know well, leading up to this i i, I it's not a I mean, how many people has he influenced? But you've mentioned Elvis. Mm-hmm. Is there an Elvis thing in this? 
Well, there always is, in a way, because Elvis was the first one who got me interested in music. Um, I really liked the way that he upset grown-ups. Um, uh, when the Beatles came along, I'm old enough to remember both of these. Now, when the Beatles came along, grown-ups thought they were foolish and had no talent. Mm-hmm. You know, these silly mop tops from Liverpool. When Elvis came along, which was earlier, uh, the grown-ups wanted to kill him. Right. Because he, uh, the sexual danger that he radiated, and the whole race thing that he was singing, you know, the African some African American music in that style, you know, and so uh, um, I really liked the reaction to Elvis. And what did Elvis have? A guitar. So I bugged my family until they got right, me a guitar, right. and then I fell in love with that. Uh, you know the. the some of the irreverence that Belvis brought to music and stuff, um, and then you mentioned the rhythm rockets yes, as well. Yes, and and rockets, but sure. I also hear it in your lyrics, uh, just a very um, humorous and lighthearted approach to some of these kind of like heavy, heavy blues riffs that you're playing. I found I always thought that that was a, 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 a an interesting juxtaposition that you didn't shy away from. Just being fun and funny in a, in a music that sometimes I think people take a little too seriously because, you know, it's got so much history behind it. Well, it happens. Uh, but the thing is, I feel that the message of any great artist isn't copy me. It's be yourself. Who are you? Right. You know, Elvis, in other words, we've already got one. So I never tried to sound like Elvis, but I tried to reflect the sensibility and the attitude that I got from him. And the well, I copied Robert Johnson note for note in okay. the beginning, you know. Right. Uh, but uh, I now try to uh, uh, just walk humbly in the, his attitude and learn. For some reason, I think of Robert Johnson perhaps as the first rock artist. Right. You know, he just came from a different place. And Bob Dylan, who was so influential as a songwriter, uh, said that there were hundreds of lines he wouldn't have written if, it, if he hadn't heard Robert Johnson. Right, right. So, right. Yeah. you know. Um, yeah, I, I know this is getting to be <laughs> somewhat of an interview. Um, I, you know, we wanted to... Be, I, I, I kind of thought it could be a chat, but I, I'm just so interested in, in what you've done and, and, and your... Um, music um i wanted to go back and and talk about some of the records mainly the 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 periods between them yes there's there's uh, after is it breakfast at the circus and then the one after it in 89 there are marked spaces between albums now is that due to record company shuffling labels etc or is that is that you touring what what is that is it downtime you, you mentioned you're on, you know, sabbatical. Well, um, I became more and more able to just record when I had something to say. Um, because one of the things about major labels, uh, to me, is that it's like being a laying hen. It's time for an egg. You know what I mean? And yeah. maybe you're ready to record and maybe you aren't, but you're going in the studio and you know, coming out with an album. Um, I can now, thank heaven, uh, have the freedom to say, okay, it's time. I have something that I think is worthy of release right. uh, you know which is a great freedom for an artist as it, you know. it is yeah that's yeah. why i noticed that there was like four years yeah five years three years between albums mm-hmm. and i i'm in a world where it's like album tour album tour i've been on this cycle for yeah. close to 15 years mm-hmm. it's what i know um but i'm not mm-hmm. i'm not at home writing songs right. i i yeah. I don't even touch the guitar if I don't have to. Mm-hmm. And then when we get the due date in right. the calendar, then I'll pick it up and start playing. I also feel that time away from the instrument uh, builds up the, the creative juices. I think so too, and it breaks down the patterns of what Miles Davis called the butter notes, the notes that one automatically goes to, yeah. uh, you know, just out of habit or whatever. Yeah. But an English record executive said to me they had a consistent problem with bands if they released a record, okay, and the record did well, right? Time came for a second album. The bands had had 20 or 25 years of life experience to put into the first album, and since that time had only seen hotel rooms, concerts or clubs or something like that, and travel. Yeah. Right? Nothing else, you know? And so they had very little to draw on for a second album, and he called it a syndrome or something like that. Like the sophomore jinx? Maybe. <clears throat> and that may be part of the cause of it, you, you know? know? First, the first album has all the best stuff yeah. written over years and years and years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And that's something that I thought of too going into our second album. Mm-hmm. Um, but I quickly got over it because I liked to be into the cycle that I saw so many of my favorite bands doing too. They're like, mm-hmm. well, they're, Motorhead's putting out an album. They put out an album every two years till, wow. till it was done. Yeah. Um, so that's where I drew inspiration from. I'm like, okay, well, we're just going to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. And there's been some negative. Obviously, there's positive and negative with everything. Sure. But I do enjoy just churning it out. Can I ask you a question yeah, about the songwriting process? Okay? Sure. Do yeah. you find that the best ones come quickly? Always. That's what Always. I think. Some of my best songs are written in 10 minutes. Always. You know, boom. If it's a breach birth and, and, and you, know, you get the, a, a really good idea for the chorus and maybe part of a verse and then nothing. Yeah. Then, you know, it's, it, it, it will either come back. Or not. And that's know? also happened, where the chorus was amazing. Yeah. And it just didn't make the deadline for this album. And I put mm-hmm. it away and then brought it back out maybe two albums later. Sure. And that then happens, I re- yeah. I'm thinking of one song in particular, and we made a video out of it. It ended up mm-hmm. being a single. And we, it's the only song we play off the album that it was on, and I played it today in practice. And, mm-hmm. And that was yeah. something that was left over. And I also feel like when I'm writing stuff, writing, trying to come up with riffs, um, I'm always looking for that five-minute tune that can be written in five minutes. Yes. And sometimes if I'm laboring over a riff, I drop it. Mm-hmm. Because it's not one of the ma- it's not meant to be one of those magic songs. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it happens that way. Yeah, every once in a while I've gotten something pretty decent that took a while, but it's rare. Yeah, usually if it's taking a long time, uh, yeah. nah, oh, know? we have million dollar riffs that were left on the shore because mm-hmm. they couldn't it didn't yeah. have, it it couldn't find a sail. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I can't find what it wants to do. Yeah. <laughs> Does it want to be an instrumental? Does it what? You know? Yeah, it's an interesting process, isn't it? In that point, because, you know, we write together as a band. Mm-hmm. Do you write alone? Uh, usually, yeah. I have collaborated with, with varying results. I, I, I made a record with Colin Linden and we co-wrote. And that was fun. You know, it seemed to work well. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. But uh, uh, sometimes I've co-written with somebody and mm, didn't really yeah. sit well. Yeah. Because that would be a, uh, an instance where you just go, take it, take the baton, run with it, mm-hmm. see where it takes you. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, th- those are, yeah, those are interesting. It's interesting things that I can't really share with anybody. There isn't anybody yeah. who does this to the degree that you and I do, where we get into the minutia of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting. I, I love hearing songwriting like uh, like songwriting snippets of, of you know just experience, but yeah, that's interesting. So you write alone. Usually. That takes um, of discipline to me. Well, uh, I think it does to some extent, but also I try not to have a process because if I have a process, it will uh, repeat. I will repeat myself more. But if I you know sometimes carry a notebook around and write down whatever thoughts come mm-hmm. you know and hopefully look for lyrics there and maybe get the words first or a, a, a riff is always an inspiration, isn't it? That just uh, your fingers stumble on something. The riffs don't happen if you don't pick up your guitar. Are you someone who plays guitar every day? You're very, you're into it. You watch TV with the guitar. One of those guys? Not now. I go through different phases. When I was in my twenties playing with Ian and Sylvia, I had days where I woke up in the morning, um, played the guitar, went to an Ian and Sylvia rehearsal in the afternoon, played the guitar, and went out in the evening and sat in with some friends in a club. You know, just played, played, played. At that time, right now, I'm not playing so much, and uh, uh, it it just goes through different phases. I think, don't you find that? But you like you say you like to grind it out. So you're yeah. No, I I'm I've never been like that. Uh-huh. I've never I I have after if after practice if if I have to hold a guitar, I I just my body shivers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's because I don't consider myself a guitar player. That's not what I lead with. Right. I'm more of a singer. Yeah. Yeah. So that leads me to asking you about singing. Mm-hmm. You have a very distinct voice. And this morning I was listening to Metro Morning and they had Randy Bachman on. Mm. And I remember the first time I heard Randy Bachman on the CBC. I didn't know he sounded like that. And I thought, who is this guy who speaks so eloquently and has so many stories about bands? 
like a personal and then it ended with him with the with the bumper it's the Randy Randy Bachman show mm. and he had such a great voice it leads me to think you have such a great speaking voice oh, okay. um and I, i'm thinking of that one track off 13 songs where you you talk right you talk sing yeah. Rain, uh, rainy night rainy saloon. Night saloon. Yes, yes. And and so I I thought about that and I, I have you done anything outside of singing? I tried voiceovers for a while. Yeah, and that would I make sense. Well, I did, but I never got I got one gig as an evil Hungarian in a video game. Really? <laughs> they What's said the Hungarian. Video game? Now, if you're Hungarian, don't be offended by this. Right. That was the role that I was right. given. Right. You know, it's Sorry. not uh, you to didn't write, stereotype anybody. You didn't write the script. You know, right. No, exactly. But uh, I, I did. My grandfather came from Czechoslovakia, okay. and so I did his accent like this with an evil laugh. Oh, <laughs> now I'm going to get you. And all this, and they, I got the gig, but that was the only gig I got. Do you, what game is that? Um, oh, that's a good question. Know, no, yeah. I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> the one with the evil Hungarian in it. I don't I'll, know I'll, do to, yeah. I'll do a search. I'll do a search. But uh, um, it did make me a better singer. Because I realized, trying to read these little scripts that they gave me for the auditions or whatever, um, I did realize that there's so many ways to interpret a phrase, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. You know, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? You know, or whatever phrase. Yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, that can be done so many different ways. So it may be a better singer. It can maybe. tie you up as well. Sure. It, it, it can, it's like having too many guitar pedals. Yeah, that's right. And that's why I only use an overdrive because, yeah. please, mm-hmm. the, uh, the options, endless options leave you stuck in the mm-hmm. same spot. I can see that, yeah. I, I use uh, about six uh, pedals, but the thing is I don't use them in rehearsal. I play strictly through the amp, right? Whoa. So when we go to the gig, I have these, they're like spices. You know, right, if I'm cooking, right. a little oregano, a little, you know, right, whatever. Right, right. You know. Does that does that kind of surprise the bandmates, your bandmates? No, they expect it. But okay, they know yeah, yeah, now. But point, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but I try to surprise them with where I use them. I mean, you know, like don't use the, you know, the envelope filter in the same place on the same night or, or a different night, that sort of thing, you know. Do you find as the front man, <clears throat> do you... Uh, often find yourself playing to the back of the room meaning do you find yourself entertaining the crowd Mm. but also equally entertaining your bandmates your crew that sees you night in and night out making sure that they're as entertained as the audience seeing that they've seen Mm -hmm. and played it millions of times try to um uh and but there's one caveat there and that is no in jokes never not ever ever the audience is in on everything absolutely it's a party and we're here and you're part of it and so I, i'm very careful with myself and with the other guys about that but uh i try definitely to keep them interested and it's one of the benefits of playing with a trio mm-hmm. is that you can keep it a bit loose yeah you know with more pieces more musicians it's harder to um uh, go somewhere new because you got to take four or five people with you right, right. and there's more chance for a fender bender right? Right, right you know but with three people it can go get pretty interesting yeah um, yeah, that's that's another thing that you and I have in common is is fronting, being the singer, and and yes. having to hold an audience mm-hmm. with your with your voice. And I, I started off saying that you have such a great speaking voice, something that obviously you were told before because you did venture into voiceovers. Someone yeah, must have told you that. Right, yeah. um, nothing, nothing past that. Not really. No. I mean, I mean, I, mean uh, I don't know. Maybe I just didn't find my niche or something right, right, like right, that. Right. But uh, uh, and I'm happy doing what I'm doing. So nobody, uh, it wasn't like I feel deprived. Nobody at the CBC has ever like come up to you and gone, David. You need your voice needs to be on the air. Well, no. But no. I, <laughs> I got to put that out into the universe here. <laughs> well, you know, I'm like I say, I'm a, I'm a happy person where I am. But uh, if some opportunity came along, I'm always open to trying something new. Yeah, you I know? mean, I, I yeah. think that you know, Randy does. He's got that kind of cornered at the moment. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but you know, with your extensive experience and your music knowledge that you can bring, your all the the music history that you bring with your music. I can hear your voice fronting a nighttime kind of like, uh, you know, like a down and cool and nighttime. Yeah, yeah, I can hear it. Um, Yeah, think about it. Let me put that in your ear and let me put that out into the universe. Uh, It'd be great. So, yeah, that's very surprising that um, there hasn't been any more forays into 
anything past the music. Mm-hmm. But we've been talking about you as a guitarist and everything, mm-hmm. but you, you're also a vocalist. And yeah. I see myself as a vocalist first, mm-hmm. mainly because I'm, I think I consider myself a better singer than a, a guitarist. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like a glorified rhythm guitar player who got some sort of promotion due to just their lack of any options because <laughs> we're a trio I mean, a good rhythm player is a really wonderful thing sure know? yeah but sometimes in the, the song calls for a solo mm-hmm. and I am I am sweating bullets the night before I gotta lay it down really coming up with yeah. just the simplest boxed solos mm-hmm. How, what do you consider yourself first and foremost what, what, what is the what, what would you lead with probably an entertainer I can okay. You well, know, then uh, scratch that. I consider myself you know, a performer can, first one, and foremost. Yeah, exactly. One of my heroes is Louis Armstrong, right? Who was such a marvelous. I mean, he was he he really uh, was one of the inventors of recorded jazz in the 1920s. But people don't think of him that way. No. They think of him as Hello Satchmo Dolly. Pops, yeah, Hello yeah. Dolly. You know. Uh, so an entertainer first, perhaps, and uh, just a combination of all that. Because I feel like I'm not the best at any of it, but I'm an individual, and the combination probably is somewhat individual or even unique as you have your unique skills and that's what I think people are hopefully come to see if someone was to walk into our dressing room while we were on tour they would immediately think I was a diva that I've got a scarf on I don't want to talk all to do with the voice mm. and everybody in our entourage and our crew they they, they understand um, they know where I'm coming from when I go oh we gotta like turn up the heat it's like sure. are you like that? Um, I'm very careful about it. Uh, it's funny. I remember the first time I ever met Carol Pope. We were introduced by a bouncer, right? Okay. And he said, I'm just getting over a cold. And Carol and I both leapt back 10 feet. Yeah. Because you know you can't sing with a cold. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so, yes, I'm very protective of it. Yeah. Don't think that when you said you were just getting over a cold half an hour ago, I didn't think... Is he still contagious no, myself? I, I and you I said that. And I know being a singer, you had to say that. Yeah. It's something that I think no one understands. Um, I like, there was one time we, we just finished recording with Garth Richardson, mm-hmm. who told me to tell you to say, as he says hi. Oh, great. Because, yeah, yeah, you guys worked together in the past. Mm-hmm. And leading up to the recording, I knew that, you know, I'd have to lay down some vocals. So mm-hmm. I was out. On a Friday or Saturday night in Toronto, mm-hmm. before the session in Vancouver, yes. at a Japanese restaurant, we were seated right by the sushi chef. He started coughing. Oh no! Yeah, that's what you want. The and then I looked over, food. and he wiped his nose oh. with his hand. I got up. We got up, and I we left the restaurant. Good for you. Yeah, we had oh, to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But anyone else wouldn't yeah. even think that deeply about it. Probably and not. that's something. And then you get tagged with being a weirdo. Oh yeah. Let me ask you this: um, Have you ever had uh, musicians try to persuade you to sing in a key that wasn't the best one because it's easier on the instruments? Uh, like in other words, we can play this in E and it's a lot easier. But wait a minute, I sing it in E flat or I sing it in F because you can't put a capo. <laughs> on the human throat. Right. You know what I mean? It, I think that the, the voice should always determine the key, even if the instruments have to work around it. It, it, it took years, but now we two and a half step down. So do we. And, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. It took, a, it took a long time to get that down. I didn't know what how to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. I think that's an essential yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, Hendrix tuned down a half step too, apparently. That's good to know. It's good fuel. Yeah. So we we yeah. will never tune back up. Because of, like, I, I just have to throw Hendrix's name in, in, there, in the pot, yeah. and it's like, oh, okay, yeah. so we will do that from now on. Yeah. So that leads me to um, this sabbatical that you're on currently. I just want to say thank you for doing this because um, Jane told me that no interviews, no shows from December 31st of last year throughout this year yeah well um, I've done this before and uh, people misunderstand it because they think of it as a vacation which it's not Um, it's a chance for me to grow to learn to listen to improve my uh, musical skills to come up with hopefully new ideas listen to some jazz play a little jazz ragtime classical whatever invites and that way expand myself and deepen myself as a musician 
So you, so you're spending your days this year doing just that. Well, yes, but in a broader sense. You know, I was going to say to you earlier that I think one of the least understood aspects of our craft is the need that we have as artists to listen to this. The sound right now of life, of uh, talking to a loved one, of dealing with some situation or an unexpected joy or tragedy or something like that. All the stuff that feeds our music and our art. You know, we need to absorb and nourish and let the field lie fallow a little bit, you know? So I am someone at home who puts on a record in the living room, Mm -hmm. walks to my bedroom, turns on my iTunes, different album. Yes. I have multiple albums playing. Nobody knows this about me if they don't live with me. Mm -hmm. Not even my bandmates, but I have multiple albums playing at home Constantly, um, you're talking about silence, right? Well, the, the, the silence in a way, but I mean, life makes sound, mm. you know, and uh, um, it's uh, it's just more absorption than anything else, you know. Maybe I'm listening to something, maybe I'm not, right? You know, right. and I definitely listen to my iPod at least once a day. Just a broad variety. Handles Messiah. Yeah. Um, I mean, a blues record, an old pop hit, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and just uh, absorb. Do you keep up with contemporary music? Not that much. Um, I, uh, 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 you know, Jesse Ray's has that wonderful song, Gatekeeper. Ooh, that's a good song. And uh, I like Ed Sheeran. You know, um, uh, Lady Gaga, you know. Uh, so, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I pay attention to some of it, but not much. Right. You know, just whatever calls to me, you know. Toronto has a funny uh, history with the guitar, you know. I mean, Prince's guitar player, Donna, uh, you yeah, know. Absolutely, yeah, And yeah. And, uh, I mean, so, so many great guitar players, uh, uh, you know, you could make a list. I mean, well, in no particular order, Lenny Bro, Robbie Robertson, um, uh, my favorite, uh, Sonny Greenwich, was, who was from Montreal, but jazz player, uh, you know, wonderful guitarist, Amos Garrett. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, Toronto has a relationship with the guitar. And the last thing that was released with your name attached to it mm-hmm. was Guitar Heroes. Yes. Which, if it wasn't said before, kind of instated you as, as a guitar hero. I mean, I think a lot of people who know you already consider you that. But it's nice to have it like kind of written in stone in a way, alongside all those other three guitar players: Albert Lee, Amos Garrett. You were saying, um, and, and uh, Mr. Burton, right? I've, I've followed him since I was about eleven years old. He was on a TV show called The Ricky Nelson Show. He played some beautiful solos with Ricky Nelson, and then of course with Elvis. And uh, he was when I got an electric guitar and played with Ian and Sylvia. I tried to copy James Burton more than anybody, and I got to tell him that. Did you guys play? Is it is that Guitar Heroes? That's a night. Yes, a right? concert in BC. I think in 2013. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, um, a rhythm section, Albert Lee's rhythm section, and the four of us, and we took turns, you know, playing that, solos. That's incredible. I mean, I think a lot of people are doing that now in different fields mm-hmm. uh, of guitar music, where they're going out on tour and together three. I've, I've seen that before. Mm-hmm. Are you guys going to do that again? Is that going to be something or or with another um, ensemble of guitarists? Well, I'm open to anything, but I don't think the, the four of us will get together again. I doubt it. Wow. But anything's possible. Yeah. Uh, but it was very humbling to play with James Burton. He's a beautiful imagine. player. I mean, right. just a really fine musician. Um, mm. So you held your own? As a well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, huh? they didn't fire me. Well, they put it on record, right? <laughs> they did. So, they put it on a record. They didn't erase it. You know, well, I brought something different to it, I think. I, I brought a bluesier feel because the material I played was a bit different than theirs, which, um, especially Albert's, which tended to be very up-tempo. Right. And I actually soloed uh, Danko at, at, like, super fast. I mean, when, I can't him? do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, <laughs> but I thought it's the only chance I'll ever get to play Country Boy, which is this extremely fast song with Albert Lee, and I can either say yes or no. No, and I said yes to soloing. So, uh, you know, 
I, I took the leap. You gotta t- you gotta do yeah once. You know why not? Yeah. You no, know, and I went places I would not have gone otherwise. You know. Um. Did they play uh one of your tunes that? Yes. Night? Yeah, we did Bad Apple, and I also did uh, a couple of um. I did Flip Flop and Fly, which is a sort of a, a blues standard, and another one called um, You're the One Who Really Gave Me a Buzz, which is by Jimmy Rogers, who was in um, Muddy Waters Band in Chicago. Wow. Yeah. So I, I sang a bit, and uh, uh, you know, we did we took turns. That's uh, amazing, and the fact that it's now released, mm-hmm. the night was released as a full record, is you must consider that to be very satisfying. Well, I'm honored. I'm, yeah. I'm very grateful to be part of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know. Um, well, I mean, I think I I picked your brain enough. We could keep going, but uh, this has mm. been. This has been amazing, David. Really thank you myself. so much yeah, for I, doing I, well, this. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it, and it's really um, uh, made my, my sabbatical better. You oh, know, great! Just to do this, it was fabulous. Oh, great! I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Listen.